I'm so excited about this announcement of the new engagement in our congregation that I'm halfway tempted to preach about human love and the glory of it and how God is good to us in that area. But you know, I suppose there is one other theme that maybe gets us a little more excited even than that, and that's the love of God himself for us. And so I'm going to stick to my original plan and preach the sermon on God in the flesh that I had planned. And to that end, let's turn to John, the first chapter, where we'll take as our reading this morning, verses 1 to 14, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, beginning our reading at the first verse. Hear now God's word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness apprehended it not. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light, even the light which lighteth every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and they that were his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God, even to them that believe on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And thus far the reading of God's Word. The Christmas season is simply amazing. Not amazing, however, because of the frenzy, not amazing because of the incredible commercialism that we see all about us, but the Christmas season is amazing because a human being could be deemed fully God, and the claim could stick. Now, I'll tell you, there are much lesser claims being made by politicians in our day that don't stick for a whole month. But we see here in the Gospel of John and throughout the whole New Testament a claim about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, that he was not only a man, but he was fully God at the same time, and somehow that claim stuck. And it stuck. And it's, it's still with us to this day. And we still remember, even if it's only a vague traditional memory in some quarters of our society, but we still remember that marvelous claim that there was a man who was also God. You know, the question that continually puzzled those who came in contact with Jesus was, who is this man? Or even better, what kind of person can this be? Let's look at some illustrations real quickly. In the Gospels, Mark, Jesus teaching in a home. People are coming to him to be healed. A man is let down through the roof to be healed. And Jesus first forgive his sins. In the seventh verse of Mark 2, we read that those sitting about reason in their heart, why does this man speak this way? He blasphemes. Who can forgive sins but one? And that's God. And then look at the end of the paragraph, verse 9. Of course, Jesus says, if I can heal this man, I can forgive his sins. And he does both. And in verse 12, and he arose and straightway took up his bed and went forth before them all insomuch that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it this way before. 
Boy, that's putting it mildly. We never saw it this way. We never saw it on this fashion. Here's a man who touches people and heals them and claims to have the prerogatives of God. Look at Matthew, the seventh chapter, verses 28 and 29, the climactic end of the Sermon on the Mount. We mustn't forget that this is the climax of the Sermon on the Mount. We tend to look at the, the content of the sermon, and rightly so, but Matthew, having presented the sermon, says, and it came to pass when Jesus finished these words, the multitudes were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as their scribes. They said, who is this man? He doesn't teach like a scribe. He doesn't say, Rabbi so-and-so said, and Rabbi so-and-so said. He says, but I say to you, who is he? Where does he get off making claims like that? Who is this man who claims to forgive sins? We've never seen it like this before. Look at Matthew, the 8th chapter, verse 27. After Jesus has stilled the tempest, you remember that marvelous story? And we read, the men marveled, saying, what manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? You feel the, the, the developing, the crescendoing puzzlement in men's minds? He teaches like no other man. He makes claims like no other man. He does things that no man can do. Who is this man? Matthew, the 16th chapter, Jesus brings it to a head. He inquires of his disciples. Well, what are men saying? Matthew 16, at the 13th verse, now Jesus came into the parts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? Remember, Jesus has been calling himself man. So he says, Now, you know me, the Son of Man? Who do men say that I am? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Well, now, even before we go on, isn't it rather amazing that level-headed, commonsensical people of the street, fishermen, bakers, shoe repairmen, said of Jesus, he must be one of the great prophets of old, come back from the dead. There was something arresting about this man, his personality, his words, and his behavior. Well, Jesus said to them after hearing this, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And how does Jesus respond? Does he say, Peter, you've gone too far. You've exalted me too much. I appreciate the flattery, but let's get back to our monotheistic faith. Let's get back and, uh, and honor the requirements about not blaspheming. Let's not attribute too much to me. He says, no. Jesus answering said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus claimed that the God who created heaven and earth was his Father in some unique way, and that that Father had put it into the heart of Simon Peter to say, You are the Son of the Most High God. Who is this man? Well, the answer to which the contemporaries of Jesus were driven was that Jesus was God in human flesh. That is an amazing conclusion. I want to remind you, Jesus had brothers and sisters. He grew up as a child. He was taught by his parents. He walked on the earth. He got hungry. He got tired. He sometimes wept. He could get very aggravated. He was a man who spoke with a normal voice, walked with real legs, and ate honest-to-goodness food. And yet somehow the people who saw him, encountered him, those who heard him and knew his life firsthand, in the flesh, up close, said he's God. 
the deity of Jesus too obvious to them. If anything, what they had a hard time ex accepting was his humanity, not his deity. In fact, the very earliest heretical tendency in the Christian church was not to make Jesus less than God, which is the tendency we have today. If anything, it was evident to that generation that knew Jesus that he was God, the Son. The heretical tendency in that day was to, deny, was to deny, therefore, that he could not truly have been a man in the flesh. It's the heresy we call docetism, that he only appeared to be a man. That is not true. That is not something the New Testament teaches or countenances. It, in fact, contradicts it. But that, we do know, was the earliest tendency to think, well, he could not really have been a man then because if anything is obvious, it's that he's God. John 1, 1 John chapter 4, excuse me, 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, tells us that it's the spirit of Antichrist to deny the incarnation. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but prove the spirits, whether they are of God, because many fall world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not Jesus is not of God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, where you have heard that it comes, and now it is in the world already. I'm not going to get into matters of eschatology this morning beyond pointing out to you that the Antichrist was already at work in John's own day. He wasn't looking forward to some special day where a special Antichrist would come. He said, this is the spirit of Antichrist that denies the incarnation, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Second John verse 7 reemphasizes this. For many deceivers are gone forth into the world, even they that confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Accordingly, you should notice how John's first epistle opens with such a strong emphasis upon that generation's hearing, seeing, and touching the eternal word of life. Just look at the very first verse of 1 John. That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen our eyes, that which we beheld, and our hands handled concerning the word of life. John wants to overemphasize, we touched the word of life, we heard, saw with our own eyes, this one who was the eternal Son of God. He was right in our midst. And so John says, it is Antichrist to deny his incarnation. It is Antichrist to deny that God has been enfleshed. That's what incarnation means, enfleshing. God has been fleshed out before us in human form. And if you deny that, you are the Antichrist. So let's take a few moments this morning and look at the spirit of Antichrist in our own age. The denial of the Incarnation is precisely the rage of our own day in theological circles. Now for those of you who do not spend a lot of time reading theological journals or the most modern developments in, in modern theological thought, know that it must come as something of a shock, something that dismays you, something that makes you wonder why would anybody bother to be a theologian if he denied these sorts of things, but it happens all the time. It has been happening for well over a hundred years, and it's come to a real head in our own day. The denial of the Incarnation has precisely become the popular fad of our day. Skepticism within the walls of the church, however, did not begin in this generation. It's been growing for years. Full-blooded Christianity has been relinquished 
in order to accommodate the church to the materialistic spirit of the age. Christianity has been denuded of its distinctive doctrines. The historic faith has been distorted and transmogrified so that it cannot be recognized anymore. Let's just look at this development for a few moments here. Throughout the 1800s, the divine inspiration of the Bible and the trustworthiness of the Bible were steadily being abandoned by theologians of repute. The leading writers in the 1800s, Germany in particular, but filtering into England and to America, the leading writers were casting doubt upon the trustworthiness and the inspiration of the Bible. And by the end of that century, of course, the doctrine of creation had been, in the minds of many theologians, replaced with evolutionary speculation. When we come to the 1920s, fundamentalism became the whipping boy of pop theology. No one wanted to be a fundamentalist. How gauche, how unsophisticated, how learned as to believe the Bible for what it says. Along with that came widespread doubt about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ and about his ability to perform miracles, both of which, of course, positivistic natural science ruled out in advance. There can be no virgin birth. We have never seen one. There can be no miracles. They just don't happen. It's unscientific to think so. Form criticism in those days began suggesting that the gospel accounts were in fact of no historical value because the gospel accounts were not historical in nature, they were only the stories, original preachers to proclaim a message of faith. And everyone knows, don't they, how preachers will make up anything to suit their case. And so these are stories made up by preachers to get the attention of people to proclaim a message of faith. You may stop and ask, faith in what? What faith is left when you give up the substance of the stories? But nevertheless, it was thought we need to have some kind of vague religious faith, and these stories prop it up. And then the bombshell finally dropped in the 1960s with the God is Dead movement. The assertion that the traditional conception of a transcendent deity, a deity that goes beyond the experience of man, that is not controlled by man's imagination, the conception of a transcendent deity became both irrelevant to modern men and it was asserted that it was philosophically untenable to believe these things. Well, since theologians had sold out <clears throat> to the naturalistic theories and to the spirit of the times, it is no surprise that there was hardly anything left of historic Christianity by that time. And yet, two last steps needed to be taken to completely demand Christianity. Two more steps toward complete disintegration were to be taken. For you see, up to this point, as strange as it may seem to us common sense folks, up to this point, skeptical and compromising theologians had continued to maintain traditional literary expressions that were thought to be the tokens of Christianity. They continued to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. They continued to talk about the incarnation of Jesus. Of course, they filled these expressions with new meanings, with new psychological or poetic meanings, but they still used the utterances about Jesus' resurrection and about Jesus' incarnation. But in the late 60s and the early 70s, modern theologians said that we had to be honest about this matter. Faith is important, they would tell you, but a literal resurrection is not. And so the message of Easter was dismissed. Not on the basis of new evidence, mind you, it's not that historians or physicists came along and brought new evidence to bear that made it impossible to believe in a resurrection. It was rather consistency with the old presuppositions that finally led theologians to say, we can't even declare a resurrection. That's just mythological talk. 
Well, that was the first step, as I see it, in the last two that dismantled Christianity completely. The last step in the anti-Christian direction of modern theology was explicitly manifested ten years ago with the highly publicized appearance of the book edited by John Hick entitled The Myth of God Incarnate, published in 1977. Now all the halfway houses of theological skepticism were washed away completely in the flood of unbelief. The narrative on which Christianity fully depends for its unique religious proclamation, the narrative that God has visited the world in human form, that Jesus Christ is uniquely the Son of God on a par with God himself, that narrative was to be seen as no more than a story, no more than an important fable whose point is really told if we take it literally. You don't get the point of the story if you just look at the story and believe it in simple terms. It's really a myth or a fable that has something else behind it. And so in this book, written by a number of modern theologians and edited by John Hick, we are told that the idea of an incarnation, the idea that God became man in Jesus of Nazareth, is a construction built upon the New Testament. It's something that is added to the New Testament rather than something that really is found in the New Testament. It's a false interpretation of the apostolic documents to say that an incarnation was taught there at the earliest level of their presentation, those documents. We are told that we must recognize that the idea of an incarnation is nothing but a myth. It doesn't declare literal truth, expresses rather the central truth that God meets us in Jesus. That is, in Jesus we have an encounter that can be thought of as an encounter with God, although he himself is not God. We're told that Jesus was born in normal fashion, simply the child of Mary and Joseph. He did not exist before his conception. He did not exist in any personal sense before his birth. The significance of Jesus, then, lies in his faith response to God. Jesus was fully open to God. Jesus fully expresses the potential of humanity in community with God. That's why he's important. Christ's sonship can be seen, then, as a development from the idea of God's man to that of God's son. Jesus was the unique man who knew God. And people then began calling him the Son of God. The full-blooded conception of God's only Son does not arise from the New Testament, but rather later developments in the early church. The conclusion you draw is that Jesus is not different from other men. He's not different in kind from other men. He's simply a man, but a man in whom God's communion was realized. His existence not in a special, unique bond with God, but rather in his capacity to inspire people to seek God and to seek the kingdom of God. Why did Jesus die? Well, not to deal with sin. In fact, the authors of the book literally call that rubbish, the idea that Jesus died as an atonement for sin. He rather died as a martyr, his life being crowned and his mission activated by his unjust crucifixion. The authors reject the physical resurrection, as you would expect, and we are left with the picture of Jesus as a human person differ from us only in what he achieved. According to John Hick, if Christianity had historically spread to the east rather than first spreading to the west, 
Christian doctrine would never have presented us a picture of Jesus, the incarnation of God, but rather we would have had the picture of Jesus, a Hindu avatar, or a Mahayana Buddhist, or to use the terms that are popular today, Michael Golder in the book says this, Jesus is the man of universal destiny. Was he God himself in the flesh? Not at all. He was simply a very unique man. Not unique in terms of what he was, but in what he achieved. And he's a great example and an inspiration to us. Now what are we to make of this? This spirit of antichrist that denies that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came in the flesh. What are we to make of that today? Can we listen to a book such as this and take it seriously? We might be inclined to think that, well, because of our religious devotion, we simply tune that out, we don't pay attention to it. But I want to go beyond that today. I want to go beyond calling it the spirit of Antichrist, which it truly is. I want to go beyond noting the apostasy of John Hick and others like this, beyond the judgment of God that awaits them for these ridiculous heretical theories that they propound, and simply point out that this skepticism about Christ's incarnation is simply too temporary. It is simply too unhistorical and too much controlled by the critics' prejudices to be taken seriously by genuine scholars. It's not just that this offends my religion. These theories will offend my mind. They offend my intellect. These men think they've given up a halfway house. I declare they are still in a halfway house. They are still compromising. They are intellectual wimps. They ought to go the whole way and say Jesus has nothing special about him. After all, given their picture of Jesus, why all this agonizing, all this worry and fear over his crucifixion? That is portrayed to us clearly in the pages of the New Testament. Clearly there have been more noble martyrs in the history of mankind who went to their death without going through the great drops of blood and the crying out to his father to deliver him from this. Jesus is not the universal man of destiny. He's not the courageous religious martyr that he's made out to be by these people. Those are just as much faith constructs added to what the New Testament teaches as what they think we are adding to the New Testament when we declare him to be the Son of God. And so they are still in a halfway house. They are humanists who don't have the courage of their humanist convictions. Let's go all the way. If we're going to give up the New Testament and have a Jesus after human construction, let's call it as it is. Jesus was a loser. Jesus was not anything we should respect. He was someone who was a megalomaniac who said things about himself that no one should believe. He did not make good on his claims. He was not particularly effective in getting around and influencing people. And he died a criminal. And that is it. Now, there is something that even the critics of our day cannot give up about Jesus. Now, they've given up a lot, and they've become antichrist, and they shall suffer eternally for it, no doubt about that. But you see, even in our day, the most vicious critics of the Christian message cannot give up on the uniqueness of Jesus. They are arbitrary, they are unhistorical, and they are prejudicial. And I'd like to point out two things. Each one will take a little bit of time, but I want you to bear this in mind when you draw your own conclusions about who is this man who stills the waves and speaks with such authority and forgives men's sins. Just who do you say that Jesus the Son of Man is? First of all, don't fall into the easy trap of thinking that the ancient world was gullible and easily taken in by anything unusual. 
This happens repeatedly in the history of thought and culture. You need to be aware of this. If I might illustrate, at the time of the Renaissance, people looked at the period that preceded the Renaissance as, quote, the Dark Ages. You see, anything that goes before us, anything that is not as educated as us, anything that's not interested in the same kind of commitments culturally or philosophically as us, is backward. And there's this prejudice then to look upon the old as the outdated. And so the Renaissance considered itself the rebirth of man and his intellect, and everything before it was dark, the age of faith. Well, the same thing happens when we, um, in the country, look back to the ancient world. We have a tendency to think, well, they were just children intellectually. They were just gullible back then. They believed anything unusual came along meant the gods were active. Well, that's just unhistorical. People who think that way don't know what they're talking about. And people who should know better, who write silly things like the myth of God incarnate, should be ashamed. They would fail any graduate course if they wrote that kind of thing about the ancient world. It is just not true. Let's take the Jews, for instance. The Jews came to resent all idolatry and all mythology. The Jews were a fiercely monotheistic people in the days of the New Testament. They strongly adhered to the doctrine of God's transcendence, that he was so separate from the world and separate from man that no human being could be called God. In fact, to call a human being God was nothing less than blasphemy to a Jew. And you notice the gospel accounts make that very plain. It was nothing less than blasphemy to deify Jesus. The of an incarnation was, and it still is, by the way, scandalous to Jewish thought. An incarnation is out of the question. They were not a gullible people inclined to idolize or turn into a god anything that seemed unusual to them. They were rather abhorred by that. Let's look at the Greeks of the same period. The Greeks of the New Testament period were often an idolatrous group of people, to be sure. And yet, even in that period, they did not take the Greek myths seriously. There might have been children, and there might even have been some rather unsophisticated people among the Greeks who might still have believed those myths, but for the most part they were dismissed. They were only stories, ways of speaking, and nothing more. And thus even political rulers could be deified among the Greeks and among the Romans despite the very people who deified them pointing to their all too obvious flaws and their weaknesses. They were not God in any literal sense, and when a Greek and a Roman said that, he should not have been taken literally. It was a way of honoring a man with exaggerated flourish. We say, he's a god. They didn't mean that in the sense that the living and true God had come to dwell in this man. It was just a way of speaking. Not unlike today. I hear that kind of blasphemous talk today, too, about how righteous or how godly or that this person is like a god. We say that certain hunks, you know, are like gods walking on earth. We don't take that literally. It may not be the way we should speak, but it is the way people tend to, and the Greeks did as well. Indeed, far from favoring any idea of an incarnation, you need to remember that Greek philosophy positively abhorred the idea of an incarnation. The Greeks yearned for release from the flesh. They yearned for release for the body. And they insisted, such as in Aristotelian philosophy, that a true God is absolutely separated from the physical world. And so the Jews had no inclination toward an incarnational faith. It was blasphemy. The Greeks had no inclination toward a God in the flesh. They considered that ridiculous. They wanted release from the flesh. Well, how about the early church? Did the early church, out of fertile imagination, write back into the Gospels an exalted ideal story of Jesus as God? 
Well, in the first place, if anything is evident from the documents of the early church is that it did not have a fertile imagination. Early church documents do not suggest the idea that they had the kind of literary flourish of those who wrote the Greek myths. They just were not that kind of people. They were a down-to-earth, simple lot of people. They were farmers and fishermen and that sort of thing. And remember that in that day, the church was in a life-and-death struggle with Roman persecution. Any historian will tell you that. Christianity and the doctrine of the Incarnation was challenged. Apologetically, the church had to raise an answer to the ridicule of civilized pagan philosophy in that day. And so if anything was dictated by the day and age in which the church lived, it would have been to tone down an incredible story of an incarnation. Because the incarnation, the doctrine of the incarnation, fueled persecution for the early church. Given the doctrine of the incarnation, early Christians could not worship Caesar. They couldn't confess him. They could consider him to be on a par with Jesus. And so they were persecuted. And given the doctrine of the incarnation, the apologetical task was overwhelming because the leading philosophy of the Roman period, Neoplatonism, insisted that the spirit God, who had a plenitude of being, could have no contact with the evil realm of matter. The spirit God could not even create a material realm. It was so out of character for him, much less come into the material realm, much less be material himself. The notion of God's walking among men and the Neoplatonic notion in the early Roman period, where would the church have come up with such an idea? It is totally arbitrary. It is totally prejudicial and unhistorical to suggest that this was made up by Jewish monotheists or Greek philosophers or even the early church. Well, now there's the second thing we need to say. People will then say, well, they borrowed it from other religions. The idea of an incarnation came in because other religions teach an incarnation and so Christianity had to have its own incarnation doctrine as well. Rubbish. Those who say such things, and they're usually pop philosophers, they're writers who do not really study in detail what they're getting at. They just don't know what they're talking about. The Christian doctrine of the incarnation cannot be accounted for by religious borrowing. And I want to very quickly dismiss this idea. Let's look at Hinduism first of all. Hinduism does have a doctrine of what's called avatars, God visiting the world. A Hindu avatar is not fully human. A Hindu avatar was considered God in human disguise. God temporarily takes on a human disguise as it were to fool people. But the avatar does not share in human life. The avatar considers himself to be above human life, maintains a position over human life. And you need to remember as well that there are many avatars in Hinduism. No one could have been uniquely God's manifestation. The doctrine of the Hindu avatar is not at all parallel to the Christian doctrine of incarnation. How about in Buddhism? This is John Hicks' favorite illustration. Well, if you know anything about the Buddha and the traditions that have arisen around him, Buddha was someone very passive, very serene, someone who withdrew from the world and denied the reality of suffering. Is this the picture of Jesus we get in the New Testament? No, oh, not at all. Jesus was not withdrawn from the world. In passive, he was active in the world. He did not underwent suffering for the sins of men. Now, after the Buddha, there are allegedly other reincarnations of the Buddha. But you see, nowhere in Buddhist theology, nowhere in Buddhist philosophy, will you find the idea that any of these reincarnations 
is the ultimate reality in flesh. Nirvana in the flesh, if you will, I guess. Nothing like that. Nothing like the idea that Jesus was God in fleshed. And then we have the doctrine of the Bodhisattva in Buddhism. The idea that a person comes to the very edge of enlightenment and rather than entering into nirvana goes back to show others the way to enlightenment. The savior of men, the Bodhisattva. But the divination of the Bodhisattvas did not take place, we know, for at least 500 years after the life of Buddha. And you know when the Bodhisattvas began to be divinized? At the very same time, the Christian message was being proclaimed throughout the Eastern and Western world. If there was borrowing, I want to suggest to you that the direction of borrowing was not Christianity from Buddhism, but just the opposite. Buddhism borrowed from Christianity to compete with it. And therefore, there's only one account of the incarnation of Jesus. There's only one way to account for that doctrine that was proclaimed, that a man was in fact God. And the only way to account for it is that, that overwhelming evidence was firsthand observed in the man himself, and that that evidence led Jewish monotheists and Greek philosophers alike to confess that, yes, he was truly man, but truly more than man as well. He was nothing less than God. Now, is that something that we cannot find in the pages of the New Testament? Well, I dare say we see it at every strata of New Testament teaching. This is not something that was foisted back upon the New Testament by some awkward theological editor who had to find a way to, to justify his own religious prejudices and, and ideas. We find it worked in naturally every level of New Testament presentation. Look at John 1, verse 14, from our scripture reading this morning, where we read, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled, took up his tent among us. And we beheld his glory, glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became, that you see in verse 14, is the same word in Greek that is translated in verse 3 of this chapter, were made. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. Clearly, the notion here is of something that was not, but has now come into being. And the Word became flesh. He was not flesh, but he became flesh. What was he before he was flesh? He was the Word, the Word of God. And in the very first verse of John's Gospel, it says, The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so this Word, who was God, became flesh and dwelt with men, took up his tent in their very presence. He existed previously as the eternal word, God himself, but now God is in human flesh. I'm telling you, that doctrine is so remarkable, so philosophically outlandish, if you don't mind me saying so, so religiously abhorrent to the spirit of its day, that only one thing can account for it, and that's that it must have been true. It must have been such that people could not deny it. John presents Jesus as an eternal person who existed prior to this life. Just look at a few passages here. John 3.13, And no one hath ascended into heaven, but he that descended out of heaven, even the Son of Man who is in heaven. Jesus said, I descended from heaven. That's where I came from. Look at John 8.58 where Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. 
he claims to have lived personally at the time of and even before of Abraham. And of course, the killer of them all, John 17, the fifth verse where Jesus prays to God before he goes to the cross, and now, Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. We have nothing less here than a man claiming to have existed before this life, to have existed before Abraham and before the world. And he came from heaven to this world. His pre-existence is only the counterpart to his deity. And so in John 1, verses 1 to 3, we read, He was with God from the beginning. He made everything himself, and he was God. Quickly, let me tell you that those who would suggest that in John 1, 1, we do not have a declaration of Jesus being God, but rather God-like, do not know how to translate the Greek. Their argument runs like this. In the Greek, there is no article. It does not say he was the God, and accordingly, one must automatically, indefinite article, a. He was a God. Well, not only is that just not true to Greek grammar, categorical declarations don't require an article at all, but it is also the case that those who say this don't follow their own rule. Take the Jehovah's Witness, for, for instance. The next time a Jehovah's Witness tells you that you must translate it, he wa the word was a God, ask them how they translate verse 6. There was a man who came from God. Because in Greek, it's the exact same construction. No article is there. And yet, no one translates that. There was a man who came from a God. It was a man came from the God, the living and true God. And so please don't be um, intellectually bullied by those who claim to know the Greek. The Greek says the word was God. No article is necessary there because of the categorical thrust of the declaration. Jesus existed before he lived in this world. He existed as God. And he is now... John emphasizes this also in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2. 1 John 4, verse 2. Hereby know ye that the, the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, is of God. And so the early church declared the enfleshing of God. Oh, but someone says, no, not the early church, only, only John's gospel. Only the literature attributed to John the Apostle. This is really something that doesn't fit into the rest of the New Testament. It doesn't. Let's look at the incarnation in Paul and Peter. Turn to Romans 8, verse 3. Romans, the 8th chapter, and the 3rd verse, where Paul says, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. God sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. A quick reminder, the likeness, the likeness of flesh, it means the likeness of sin. Jesus came with the same kind of body that sinful men have, but he did not have sin. He was holy, harmless, and undefiled. But God sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came with the same kind of body that sinners have. Ephesians 2, verse 15. having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that he might create in himself of the two one new man, so making peace. 
Colossians 1.22 again stresses the flesh of Jesus. Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and without blemish and unreprovable before him. And 1 Timothy 3.16 And without controversy great is the mystery of godliness who was tested in the flesh. Well, the doctrine of the Incarnation is not the unique, creative idea of John. If anything, the epistles of Paul have it much stronger and much earlier than John himself. Peter as well. Look at 1 Peter 3, verse 18. Because Christ also suffered for sins once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And 1 Peter 4, verse 1, For as much then as Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. In the flesh. In the flesh. God is in the flesh. Repeatedly. Paul and Peter would say that. Look at the doctrine of the incarnation in Hebrews as well. Clearly, Jesus Christ is set forth in the book of Hebrews as a divine figure. Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 3 hath at the end of these days spoken on whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, who being the effulgence of his glory and the very image of his substance and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he made purification for sin, sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. The very image of deity. That's who he is. Look at verse 8. But of the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Look at verse 10. And thou, Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. The one spoken of here is Jehovah, the Lord. He is God, whose throne is forever, the very image of the divine substance. And yet the book of Hebrews is equally clear that this one of whom we have been speaking came with human flesh and blood. Chapter 2, verse 14. Since then the children are sharers in flesh and blood. He also himself, in like manner, partook of the same, that through death he might bring to nothing the power of death, that is the devil. Look at Hebrews 5, verses 1 and 7. For every high priest, being taken from among men, is appointed for men in things pertaining to God. Then verse 7 tells us, of Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, having offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him, that is able to save him from death. Look at Hebrews, the seventh chapter, verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord hath sprung out of Judah. He grew up having come from the tribe of Judah. Chapter 10, verse 5. Wherefore, when he comes into the world, notice the pre-existence, he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering, thou would not, but a body did you prepare for me. Look at Hebrews, the 10th chapter, verse 20. By the way which he dedicated for us, a new and living way through the veil, that is, his flesh. One more passage in Hebrews, chapter 13, 12 where the author says, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. 
Here is one that is the eternal God, whose throne is forever, who is the exact image of the substance of God, who yet took on flesh and blood and suffered and shed his blood and was taken from among men. Now I'm telling you, you cannot get rid of the incarnation in the New Testament. It is not something that was painted over the surface of an original doctrine. It is just part and parcel of what John said and the author of Hebrews and what Paul said and what Peter said. Repeatedly, we have this amazing, incredible, unbelievable idea that God was once in flesh. Oh, but it's more than that. Because you see, as a philosopher, we might, as philosophers, we might be able to accommodate that if we could just get rid of the stickiness of certain aspects of the doctrine. If we could just... Well, if we could say that when God became flesh, he stopped being God. Strange, but at least it would make more sense to us that God, somewhat like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly, God became something that he wasn't previously. He became a man. Not that he continued being God. He was God now transferred into the form of a man. Or on the other hand, if we could say once having become man, he gave that up. Like an avatar, he used the human body, then discarded it then we could accommodate this to our philosophical prejudices. But you see, there is no toning down of the mystery of the Incarnation in the New Testament. No toning down of the metaphysical mystery here. Because the New Testament says that Jesus, by becoming incarnate, did not cease to be God. And ascending in glory, he did not cease to be man. Let me say that again. That's very important. By becoming incarnate, he did not cease to be God. And by ascending in glory, he did not cease to be man. The first part of that, when he became incarnate, he did not cease to be God. The New Testament teaches incarnation by addition, not by addition. Jesus became, the Son of God became a man by adding human nature to himself, not by subtracting deity from himself. Look at Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8. Philippians 2 at verse 6, who, existing in the very form of God, counted not the being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. Jesus didn't have to grasp after equality with God. He already had that. And yet he wasn't unwilling to humble himself and take on the form of a man. He did not subtract his deity from himself. He added humanity to himself. And so God became the God-man. He took on the form of a servant. By becoming incarnate, he did not cease to be God. But now I want you to remember an answer to a question we had in Bible study recently. By ascending in glory, he did not cease to be a man either. How do we know that? Well, Hebrews 13.8, for instance tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, yes, and forever. He's the same. He did not give up his humanity, this Jesus of Nazareth. He's the same. And in fact, 1 Timothy 2.5, a very important passage, tells us he continues to function as our mediator, our great high priest. 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God, one mediator also between God and man, himself a man, Christ Jesus. All of that in the present tense. Jesus, at the time Paul wrote this, was a man. And in Colossians 2, verse 9, the last passage we'll study this morning, in Colossians 2, 9, Paul tells us in the present tense, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead 
bodily. Right now, presently, as I am writing, Paul says, the full deity, the full Godhead, Jesus in bodily form. He did not give up his body. He did not cast it off like an avatar. He is now man forever. The God-man. By becoming incarnate, he did not cease to be God. And ascending in glory, he did not cease to be a man. And so do you see what I'm getting at about the incarnation? It's such a, an amazing thing that that claim was ever originated and that it has stuck. It's amazing. It's also indispensable to the New Testament. And I dare say it's undeniable. God, amazingly, visited us in human flesh. There is an individual who when you look at him and speak with him and touch his very real body, you would say, this is God in the flesh. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our precious faith. We thank you even for the mysteries that are declared in your holy word. And above all this morning, we thank you for the mystery of incarnation, that you should love us in such a way and demonstrate your almighty power so gloriously that you should come and take on human nature, flesh and blood, just like ours. But Father, we're also humbled by this. It's not only exhilarating, but it's humbling because we know that you took on human nature for the sake of dying. You took on our human nature, that in that very nature you might die as a substitute for sinners. We thank you for such love. We thank you that the incarnation is not simply a mystery of philosophy, not simply some kind of wonder of nature and miracle that no other religion has. We thank you because the incarnation is a declaration of a love that goes beyond our imagination, a love that goes so far that God would become man. We thank you that our Savior Jesus Christ continues to be a man, continues to be the God-man who is the perfect mediator between heaven and earth, between sinners like ourselves and a holy God as you are. How we thank you that he continues to sympathize with us because as a human being he knows our infirmities, he knows our weaknesses, and above all he continues to love us. We do pray that you would hear us only for the mediation of that, your incarnate Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.